So I've got a, I'm going to begin a little differently today. I've got a question to ask you, and then I want your answers. So don't be shy. We're, uh, we're all maturing in Christ together, and the Word will teach us more in just a minute. But what comes to your mind when you think about union with Christ? Give me, give me some of your answers. What comes to mind when you think about union with Christ? Baptism, okay. Good. Romans 6 there. What else? Closeness. Closeness. Christ's nearness to us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. What else? Bonded. Bonded. Good. Empowering. Empowering. Good. When we're united to Christ, he empowers us through his spirit. Freedom, good. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin, good. Yeah. What are some others? Good, Rodney, yeah. Being conformed into his image. Peace. Peace, yeah. Peace in our relationship with God and with one another when we're united to Christ. Say it again, Warshay. Permanent? Yeah, it is permanent. Good. That's good. Y'all are, y'all are covering the map here uh, with union with Christ. It is a, a very encompassing subject. Uh, stretches from eternity past with our election all the way to our glorification uh, in, in the future. Uh, but something that, that's often overlooked is that union with Christ in salvation also means union with Christ in his mission. Uh, that too is part of union with Christ. It, union with Christ is in no way a kind of uh, get out of hell free card uh, while we go about life as we would have done it anyway without Christ. Uh, no un- union with Christ shapes what we're passionate about, how we do life, and what we give ourselves to. How does union with Christ lead you to extend salvation to others? That's the question we're going to be uh, faced with this morning. It's not a matter of if you extend salvation to others. Uh, For the person who truly is united to Christ, it's a matter of how. How is he using us to extend salvation to others? How is the living Christ extending his salvation to others through you? So let's read how Paul sees his mission uh, this morning in light of his union with Christ. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 44. Remember that a week earlier Paul had preached Christ from the scriptures and uh, the Jews beg him to return the next Sabbath to explain these things uh, more. And so word gets out and the whole city then shows up. We've got both a mixed crowd now. We've got the Jews and the Gentiles from the city who are there to hear what Paul has to say. And we pick it up in verse 44. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit." Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that it would edify us this morning and equip us. We pray that it would uh, help us to see who we are in our Lord Jesus, what he has set set us apart for, and not only in terms of fellowship with himself, which is just glorious, but also in terms of, of how we extend his salvation to others we know. We pray for our family and our friends and our co-workers who do not know this salvation that we know. And we pray that you might use this message to embolden us to take uh, Christ to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Luke is continuing his theme of the word of the Lord spreading. And in doing so, he describes two occasions where it spreads. One is in the whole city and, in the, and the other is in the whole region. You see the city there in verse 44 and the region in verse 49. And as the word spreads in the city and then out to the region, a unique pattern emerges. In both the city and the region, the pattern goes like this. The gospel gets reiterated for the Jews. Some of the Jews then reject the gospel. Then there's a missional response to reach the nations. And then those who believe rejoice. And Luke does this twice. He does it once in the city, and then he does it again in the region. And this pattern really shapes where we're going today... And not just today, that pattern reappears throughout Acts because that's the pattern of Paul's mission. He offers the Jews salvation first, and then he extends that salvation to the nations. But that pattern isn't just the result of Paul kind of inventing the the most effective strategy. It's not just kind of trial and error. Well, that didn't work. This will work better. Um, It's no mere coincidence either. No, the pattern is one actually that's determined by God's mission in Scripture. What we're observing here is the supernatural outworking of God's mission through a special servant who is living within his church. And it has a lot to do with us and a lot to do with the way we uh, view ourselves and with what you do with the days you have left on earth. So I'm going to use the pattern I just summarized to structure our time. Uh, But I'm going to run through these two occasions, his mission in the city and his mission in the uh, region 
simultaneously. We're going to walk through them. And then we'll get to some application at the end. So let's first look at the gospel reiterated. Okay, that comes first, the first time in verse 44. They gather to hear the word of the Lord. And then again in verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading. So uh, we've said this before, but Acts is a book about the word of the Lord spreading. But if you ask what word of the Lord is in view, the answer is all that Paul preached throughout chapter 13. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ according to scripture. Gospel means good news. The bad news is that we're sinners by nature. We've committed cosmic treason against our maker. The consequences of rebellion is death and condemnation. And God's, God's law condemns us. And what's worse is that nobody can rescue themselves. That's, Paul is making this point uh, when, he, when he mentions the law. Good works can't save. Law keeping can't save. And so we're desperately lost. But Paul is the messenger of good news. He is a herald uh, and he is announcing that God sent Israel a savior, Jesus Christ. Just as he promised. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived. Jesus suffered our punishment. He, he became a curse. Jesus died our death. Jesus rose again from the dead, proving that he and he alone is God's Savior. So it's through his life, death, and resurrection that sinners like us get forgiveness of sins and freedom from condemnation and an eternity of joy in God's presence. That's where Paul has taken them to this point in his preaching. And that's the message he reiterates. And some are rightly excited. They are begging Paul, you've got to come back next week and explain these things more. So he does. And then we see that not all of the Jews will respond the same way. In fact, a number of them reject the gospel. They reject the gospel. Verse 45. But when the Jews, and he means of course here the unbelieving Jews, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began, and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Or another translation, blaspheming God. So they're, they're likely not jealous simply because Paul's message attracts, seems to be attracting greater numbers. They're not jealous because Paul's the next mega pastor over the horizon. In context, think of what Paul just said about Christ in relation to their law. Look, at verse, look back at verse 39. He says, By Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed... By the law of Moses. So imagine how that sounds to a people who for centuries have boasted in their law keeping, who have boasted in their circumcision, and who have boasted in their food laws and their customs. Now don't get me wrong, God put the law in place to set Israel apart from the nations, but never did he intend for the law to become for his people a point of boasting in their own righteousness. The law was provisional and it was always pointing them, uh, the, pointing them to their need for their Savior. 
And yet, the Jews absolutized the law so that things like circumcision and food laws became points of boasting over the nations. And then enters Paul, and you have this mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, these pagan Gentiles, these uncircumcised, unclean people, and they're all there. And Paul says, anybody is welcome into God's covenant people through Jesus. Even more, the law can't free you from condemnation. Only Christ can. The law can't make you righteous. Only Christ can. Whoa, he's just undermined all of their grounds for boasting. The Jews must admit, if they truly understand the message he's preaching, they have to admit that Gentiles are on equal footing with them at the cross. It doesn't matter what your background is or where you've come from, or if you have Satan rules tattooed across your knuckles, salvation is full and free by faith in Christ alone. And so these Jews are filled with jealousy. They're jealous to preserve their own glory, their own customs, their own nation. And that leads to contradicting the gospel and blaspheming God. So I want you to note that. Jealousy for your own glory contradicts the gospel and blasphemes God. Jealousy for your own glory will contradict the gospel and blaspheme God. And in verse 50, their jealousy even leads to persecution. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And so we see here that a number of Jews reject the gospel. They reject the gospel because of what they're seeing it truly, in fact, means in terms of their relationship with others. So Paul and Barnabas then give a twofold missional response. To begin, they expose the consequences of unbelief. They expose the consequences of unbelief. Verse 46. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And since you thrust that word aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That's the exposure. You see, Jesus is the only one, Jesus and his righteousness, is the only one who can make us suitable candidates for eternal life. When you reject Jesus You're not a suitable candidate for eternal life. You have condemned yourself by that very rejection, is what he's getting at. They have pronounced a sentence on themselves by denying the gospel. And there's also an exposure in the prophetic act of verse 51. Look look at it. It says, they shake off the dust from their feet against the Jews. That comes from Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples to do the same thing when when they were going out and and ministering to the, the lost sheep of Israel. We get this in Matthew 10 and Luke 9. The most detail comes uh, in Luke chapter 10 uh, when Jesus sends out the 72 and he mentions this shaking off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them. And Jesus Jesus is basically uh, 
saying that this is a sign that judgment will fall on the Jews who reject Christ. Jesus says that it'll be more bearable on judgment day for Sodom than for the Jews who reject their Messiah. So this is kind of a prophetic sign of of judgment. So the consequences of unbelief are no eternal life and only condemnation, just judgment. But there's another piece to their response. It says they also extend salvation to the nations. Look at verses 46 and 47. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Now, we need to be careful. By turning to the Gentiles, Paul doesn't mean that this is the first time the Gentiles are hearing the gospel. They've already heard the gospel the first time in Acts 10 and 11. Um, Paul also doesn't mean that he's just frustrated and finished with these stubborn Jews. That from now on, he's reaching the Gentiles only. No, because the first thing he does in chapter 14, verse 1, is go into the synagogue and share the gospel with Jews. Right? And we also know from Romans 9 to 10 that Paul had great sorrow in his heart for, for Israel's salvation. He prayed fervently for the Jews to believe in Jesus. He also doesn't mean that reaching Gentiles is second best. Like it's not some attitude of, well, blast. Like, now I've got to go to the Gentiles. No, Jesus himself commissioned the disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And specifically for for Paul, he even mentions the Gentiles in in his commissioning of Paul. So what then does Paul mean? Well, we see this crop up in other places, especially uh, Romans. Uh, Romans 1.16, we we could race there for an explanation. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. And also the Greek. And so you get this... Salvation, yes, is universal and indiscriminate in the way it goes out, but there's a priority in terms of the Jew first and also the Greek. Right? It's to them, he says, who belong the covenants and the promises and even the Christ. From But even that prescribed order in Paul's mission isn't his own creation. It's actually rooted in Scripture, and we see it come out very explicitly in Paul's use of Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that follows the, uh, 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 in Isaiah 49, 6, him talking about uh, the, the gospel going first to the Jews. Essentially, Paul recognizes that the Jews hold a privileged place in God's redemption story. But that same redemption story includes God extending his salvation beyond Israel to the nations by the ministry of a particular servant. The servant's mission determines Paul's mission. So to grasp the significance of Paul's quotation, we need to understand Isaiah's prophecy. And so I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 49. You might stick your... uh, Worship guide or something in in Acts 13, we'll we'll flip back there in a minute. But Isaiah 49 is where we need to go right now. 
you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 609. And while you're going there, I want to fill you in on a, on a, a theme that's already been developing in Isaiah. Back in Isaiah 41, God identifies Israel the nation as his chosen servant. Servant. But as the prophecy continues, Israel the nation is an unfaithful servant. So Israel is a servant. It's kind of a collective noun. But it's an unfaithful servant. Uh, Isaiah 42.19 says, Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send. So the, the servant nation of Israel is unfaithful, is unfit to accomplish God's will. But Isaiah 42, uh, verse 1, also introduces another servant. And he too is God's chosen servant. But, but this servant is faithful. He brings justice to the nations. God gives him as a covenant for Israel, a light for the nations, it says. And so Isaiah is intentionally oscillating between the unfaithful servant nation and the faithful servant individual. And he kind of goes back and forth throughout these servant songs. And we find the same oscillation in chapters 48 and 49. Isaiah 48 reveals Israel, the nation, as a stubborn servant in exile who needs God's redemption. And Isaiah 49 then introduces us to the other servant individual who not only embodies what Israel was supposed to be, but he extends God's salvation to the nations. So I want you to look at, verse 40, at, at chapter 49, verse 1. He says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. See, there's the salvation offer to Jacob or Israel. Then he also says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What's Isaiah's message here exactly? Well, at first glance, it seems like he's talking about the servant nation. I mean, he plainly says in verse 3, You are my servant, Israel. Right? But as you keep reading, the picture seems to focus on an individual that does something for Israel. 
You see it in verse 5. He's going to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to God. The servant can't be Israel the nation because he's going to bring Israel the nation back to God. And so we're, we're getting a servant individual called Israel who saves the servant nation called Israel. So how do we make sense of that? Well, the servant individual embodies everything the servant nation was supposed to be. Okay, so the servant is Israel in as much as he functions like Israel. He's what you might call the true Israel or the ideal Israel. As our brother Andy once put it, he's the ideal Israel not only because God shows his glory in him, but because he's going to spread God's salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what Israel was made for, to be blessed and to be a blessing to all nations. And the servant is fulfilling this, that role perfectly. But who is this servant individual? Who is this true and ideal Israel? Well, Isaiah never knew his name. But we know his name. Centuries later, Luke's gospel records an old man named Simeon uh, who's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he was in the temple one day. And Mary and Joseph, they they bring the child Jesus to Simeon. And Simeon took up Jesus in his arms and blessed God... And he says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's from Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Simeon reveals Isaiah's servant individual as Jesus. So Jesus is the true faithful servant sent to bring Israel back to God and extend God's salvation to the nations. He embodies everything Israel was supposed to be. And the further you get into Isaiah, the more and more you see that this servant has to be Jesus Christ. I mean, the servant redeems Israel by giving himself as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. Isaiah 53. And the New Testament everywhere applies that to Jesus. Jesus saves Israel and he saves the nations because Jesus was the one who's pierced for our transgressions. Right? Now I should also add another detail here. The servant's servant's mission isn't going to be smooth. It's actually going to be frustrating. Notice the servant's cry in Isaiah 49 verse 4. I have labored in vain... I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. In other words, his mission to bring Israel back to God seems like it's frustrating. It's, it's failing. It seems that way anyway. And that's precisely when God responds, it's too small a thing to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'm going to make you a light for the nations. In other words, your work is not in vain. I'm bringing the nations through you. 
And that describes the ministry of Jesus rather well, right? He comes to his own people, the Jews, and at large, the majority reject him. But once he dies and rises again, what does he say? Go and make disciples of all the nations. So truly, Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 49.6. How in the world then does Paul apply Isaiah 49.6 to us? I want you to go back now to Acts 13. Because this is crazy. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Paul takes it and applies it to us. That's what he says. Look, look very carefully at Acts chapter 13, verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us... So that word, we just read it, what he said to the servant, who we know as Jesus. Paul says, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Who does Paul think he is applying Isaiah 49.6 to himself? We know he can't be claiming to be the servant. He's not as faithful as the servant. He can't be. I mean, Paul says of himself elsewhere that he's the chief of sinners. Is he claiming to be the the servant, Isaiah 49.6? He can't be because Paul will actually allude to this passage again in Acts 26.23. But there he clearly says it's Jesus who proclaims light to Israel and the nations. What's he saying then? He's saying that Jesus' mission as the servant continues now through the church. Jesus' mission as the servant continues now through the church. When God unites us to Christ in salvation, God fully incorporates us into the mission of the servant himself. We have such a spiritual bond with Christ that his mission becomes our own. And we find similar statements elsewhere. Think of it. John's Gospel says that Jesus is the light of the world. And Paul turns around in Ephesians and says, you are light in the Lord. John's Gospel also says that Jesus is the true temple. And Paul turns around in Ephesians 2 and says, You are God's household, a holy temple in the Lord. So the in the Lord part, in union with Jesus, you are the light, you are the temple. And here we're getting something very similar. Jesus is the true servant. And yet our union with the servant means his servant mission to the nations becomes our servant mission. In him we are servants who bring light to the nations. So but to belong to Christ is to have him living in you and, in to, and to have him extending his salvation to the world through you. And that's what happens here with Paul and Barnabas. I guess you could object. Well, this is applying to Paul and Barnabas only. I mean, they're the us here. 
Yeah, that just kind of all breaks down, though, when Paul later on in his letters says, you imitate me, church, like I imitate Christ. So this is referring, yes, to Paul and Barnabas and the church at large is, is in the us here. And you see them extending the servant's salvation first to Israel, just like the servant did. And they experience some level of rejection, just like the servant did. And then they extend salvation to the nations, just like the servant does. And when the Gentiles learn this good news, it says those who believe rejoice. Those who believe rejoice. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Also, verse 52. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We see once again that Luke is connecting conversion with joy. The Gentiles rejoice. The disciples are filled with joy. Evangelism is for joy, brothers and sisters. That's the first way I want to apply this this passage. Christ's mission is to bring joy to the lost world. I doubt that you'll run into many people who simply don't want to be happy. I mean, in general, people want joy. They crave joy. And the problem is that sin so easily blinds people that we pursue joy in the wrong things or for the wrong reasons. We're far too easily pleased with the trinkets and comforts of this world and the joy promised by one experience doesn't last and so we move on to another. Don't get me wrong, there are many things that God has created and put in this world for us to enjoy. But the greatest joy is to have your sins forgiven and brought into a right relationship with God. To know God is the highest joy and the only joy that endures forever. Moreover, when we know God, we can actually enjoy the things in this life rightly and more fully as God intended. Even through trials, we see the early church joyful here. The gospel was just rejected. Paul and Barnabas were just persecuted. And yet there's this lasting joy in God's salvation. It's like Paul says elsewhere that we can can even rejoice in sufferings knowing that, this is Romans 5, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So when you think about evangelism, I want you to think about it in terms of bringing joy to others in the world. That doesn't mean everyone will receive this joy when you take it to them. Some will reject it, just like they rejected Jesus and just like they rejected Paul. And that's something else we should take home. Being united to the servant in mission will also mean we're rejected like the servant. We're going to be rejected like the servant. We can expect a mixed response to the gospel It's normal for people to reject the gospel and the messengers who bring it. And when that happens, we shouldn't get mad and frustrated. We shouldn't despair like something's just wrong with this gospel. Maybe we need to tweak it a little bit and make it more palatable. We shouldn't give up and grow cynical about sharing the gospel with others. Like this is just pointless anyway. 
No, when people reject us, we respond as the servant himself did. How was it again? What did he say back in Isaiah? He cried to the Lord, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Some of you have felt that way with a wayward son or daughter. Some of you have felt that way with someone you cared for like a son or daughter. Some of you feel that way about a wayward spouse or a betrayal by a friend. Again and again you sacrificed and you spoke truth and you cared and in the end they rejected you. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity has been your cry. And yet where does the servant place his trust in Isaiah 49? He says, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. So he trusts the Lord to reward him. And what does God become for him? It says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. And it's within this attitude of trust that the Lord then makes him an effective servant to keep laying his life down and getting the gospel to others. People will reject us because of our union with Christ, but our labor is not in vain. Our right is with the Lord. Our reward is coming with Jesus. And therefore we can keep sharing and we can keep sacrificing. Another reason we can keep sharing and sacrificing is the sovereignty of God and salvation. The sovereignty of God and salvation. You see it there in verse uh, four, at the end of verse 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. People must hear the gospel. People must believe in the gospel if they are to be saved. But God's sovereign choice stands behind their belief. People will believe because God appointed some to eternal life. And Revelation gives us a picture of them at the end of time, right? And it's not, a, it's not just a handful of people. It's multitudes upon multitudes of people who are worshiping the Lamb for their salvation from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's, it's, it's like what he told Abraham, that they're going to outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. So when you see that as many as were appointed to eternal life, we're talking about lots and lots of people who will come to faith. And this reassures us that our sharing the gospel isn't in vain when we face rejection. All whom he has appointed will believe. And our responsibility is simply to be faithful with the opportunities God gives. And we go and we speak the gospel and we weep over people's salvation. We pray for them. And we trust God to save his own. And then lastly, I want us to not forget, God has commanded us. It says here, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. What is darkness in Isaiah's 
prophecy. Darkness in Isaiah's prophecy is moral depravity. It's people sitting in their depravity without the light and clarity of God's revelation. And so we have been called to be the light, that is, go to these people sitting in their moral depravity and open up the truth of God's word so they can see clearly right from wrong, truth from falsehood. Empty philosophies of the day versus the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've been called to be this light. I want to quote our brother Andy again. He, you know, he was so spot on when he preached this text before leaving to, to Africa. Andy is embodying this passage. And he said, When you become part of Christ's body, you're not merely a passive recipient of grace. You're made to be an agent of grace, an ambassador for Christ, a light to the nations. So we're not just passive recipients of grace. We're agents of grace. Friends, if you're not interested in being a light to others, if there's no part of you that wants to share Christ with others, then I want you to seriously pray and, and, and evaluate whether you know Christ at all, whether you have a true union with Jesus Christ at all, whether he's really living in you. Some might say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I just love deep Bible study. That's, that's my thing. I love deep Deep Bible study, missions isn't really my calling, evangelism isn't my calling. I love deep Bible study. Well, let me just say that your Bible study is pretty shallow then if you're not interested in missions or evangelism. Because on every page of Scripture, it resounds with God's passion to reach the nations in Christ. Or another might say, well, you know, reaching for others... Reaching others for Christ, just, it just really isn't my spiritual gift. You're right, it's not a spiritual gift, it's a command. And we see it here. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Incorporation into Christ by necessity means incorporation into Christ's mission. Christ lives in his people to extend salvation to others. So yeah, he commands us to go, but you need to also note he's in here. He's living inside of us through the Spirit. So you're not doing it on your own. You're not doing it in your own strength. You do it because he lives in you. You think of that when you're timid. He lives in you. Consider that when you're weary of serving and serving and serving and all you get is rejection, rejection, rejection. The servant who gave himself to the point of death on a cross beneath the wrath of God, he lives in you. 
He lives in you. He will enable you to share Christ with others and to give yourself as He gave Himself for you. Perhaps you have uh, people in your mind right now who are without Christ. I want to encourage you just to write, write their names down. Keep them on a bookmark maybe in your, uh, in your... So when you read the Bible and you turn next page, they're on your prayer list and they're on your hearts throughout the day. Write them down, pray for them to know Jesus, and then look for opportunities to share with them. If you need help sharing with them, I'd be more than excited to help equip you, grab lunch together, and talk through it. So would the other elders and other people in this church who are really gifted in in communicating effectively the gospel to others. If you're hearing this message and thinking, gosh, man, I'd really like, I'd really love to go out from this body and reach people in other lands without churches and without such ready access to the gospel, without any lights whatsoever on the horizon, who are still sitting in their moral depravity, this darkness with no lights. And you want to go, but you just don't know how. Again, you need to come talk to me. And you need to come talk to the elders and we can start praying and equipping you and walking with you toward that end. I'm also in the middle of planning some short-term trips this year. I'd like to see teams go to China and Russia this year uh, to visit our, some of our uh, folks on the field. So if you'd be interested in going, please come see me. If you can't go, consider supporting the teams financially uh, when they ask. And uh, they will ask. However the Lord has gifted you, He lives to extend salvation to others through the church. So let's be that light to the nations. Let's, let's take that light into people who sit in darkness. And let's help each other grow into that. Let me pray for us.